again, we welcome you, and uh, thank you, band, for leading us in worship and, and uh, declaring that over us and allowing that to, to shape us. I love worship and singing. I know many of us here aren't the type that are going to be raising our hands and are um, uh, maybe not even singing, but I know many of you have even expressed that as you're doing that, what is being sung over you and the truth that you're experiencing is also taking shape in you. And you may not be the outward expressive person, but that God is working in you. So if that's you today, if you're like that too, know that there's nothing wrong with you. If you raise your hands, if there's, that's great if you do and, and sing out and whatnot. But just we come and we want to allow God to speak to us in the truth of those songs as well. So we're in a series called uh, Love Your Neighborhood, and uh, we have a lot of ground to cover today, so I don't want to waste any time and jump right in. This whole series for us is about what it looks like to love our neighbors, and therefore what it looks like to love our neighborhoods. Not just our neighborhood here in the east end of Lexington and downtown, but also for us individually, wherever we live in our houses, our apartments, and our dorms, wherever that may be, what does it look like to love our neighbors as ourselves? Jesus, he sums up the entire of the scripture, he says that all the law and the prophets hang on this when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs on that. This is the heartbeat of our faith. And so that's an, an, that's an idea that we have to grapple with. What does it mean to love God and what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself. If, if that's what Jesus hinges everything on, then that should be vital and, and incredibly important for us. And what we've learned throughout this series is that our neighbor is not just people who look like us, act like us, vote like us, dress like us. Our neighbor is everyone. Our neighbor is anyone in need. Our neighbor is you and me and all of us and everyone out there. You're not going to meet someone that is not an image bearer of God and therefore is our neighbor. And so we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. So that, that works its way out personally, as I just said, and also works its way out in our community as restoration. How we figure out the best way that God is calling us to love our neighbor. And one of the biggest issues that we, we face in this area, but also I'm sure a lot of us either growing up around it or maybe in your neighborhoods that you're running into is poverty. Poverty, specifically in downtown Lexington, is something that we run into on a lot. Many of us in here, I understand too, grew up in or around poverty, or maybe you're in poverty right now, you're dealing with poverty right now. One of the things I love about our church is, is that we are a very socioeconomically diverse church. There's, there's lots of different people. There's some who you consider rich, there's some who you consider poor, and God is bringing us together as one family. So we have to talk about poverty, and you might say, what's this have to do with me? What's this have to do with my, my own talk and my own spiritual journey? Why do I have to understand anything about poverty? Well, it's because the scriptures talk a lot about the poor. There's over 2,000 verses that deal with the poor in the scriptures. 2,000 verses. And so it's obvious throughout the scriptures that God has a heart for the poor, for the oppressed, for the outcast. And if God has that heart, 
and God is making us into the image of Jesus, as that's what we believe he's doing, then, then our hearts should be, begin to be shaped towards, move towards loving the poor and the outcast and the oppressed. We see it over and over in scriptures. And I don't know about you, I just want to be, I want to be faithful to Jesus. I don't want to be faithful to scriptures. Even though sometimes what we read in the scriptures make us uncomfortable, and even though sometimes what we read in the scriptures may not align with any particular side of a political persuasion, sometimes they are equal opportunity offenders for both. Amen? That's kind of where I like to be. Make everybody mad, you know? Because poverty is, is obviously politicized. I'm just joking about that. I don't like making make people mad. That's, that's bad. But poverty is politicized by both sides of the political perspective. So if you came from a particular background today, if you showed up here, you probably have some sort of, of talking point about poor people or about poverty that you've been handed and, and that talking point may have shaped the way that you see it. It may be a, a conservative talking point about how to deal with poverty. It may be a liberal talking point about how to deal with poverty. But, but whatever that is, what I want to encourage us to do today is allow Jesus and the scriptures to be the lens through which we see reality, including poverty, including other image bearers, instead of the other way around. Do you know there's a difference between seeing my politics through the lens of Jesus and seeing my Jesus through the lens of my politics? You understand that, right? There's a big difference. And what we want to do, we have a, a politically diverse church too. We want to see our politics and the way we understand people and systems and issues through the lens of Jesus and the scriptures. And that's what we want to do here today is not to give any particular hot takes on either side, but what does Jesus and the scriptures call us to do in regards to the poor? So when Jesus begins his ministry, he, he stands up in the synagogue in Luke 4 and he gives this address. It's actually a quotation from Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He goes on to tell the people in the audience of the synagogue that day that, that today this, this, this scripture is fulfilled in me. That his life, Jesus' life, is the embodiment of what he just quoted from Isaiah 61. Good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and, and, and the year of the Lord's favor, meaning the year of Jubilee. Now, Jubilee was something in the Old Testament where every 50 years, everyone's debt was forgiven. That sounds fun, doesn't it? What if we just did that with student debt? That would be even better. Like every one year, student debt would be forgiven, and then we could not have to worry about that anymore. That's in the Old Testament. And so when I've, I've heard these verses in the past, especially growing up in a, in a different context, there, there's, you're, there's typically the understanding that this is, this is all spiritual metaphors, that, that we're spiritually poor, that, that, that we're, we're spiritually prisoners, that we're spiritually blind, that we're spiritually oppressed. And so Jesus is setting us spiritually free and then not having really anything to do with our actual physical lives. Now, there's a sense that that's true. Jesus is doing that for sure. But, 
But I wonder if, if we're not missing out and, and actually moving into a little bit of a Gnostic dualism and, and forgetting that Jesus actually did come to bring good news to the literal poor. Two, to proclaim freedom for literal prisoners, to, to recover sight for literal blind people, for, to set literal people who are oppressed free, and to, to proclaim the year of Jesus' jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor when debts are forgiven and life is renewed. I don't think it's all just a spiritual metaphor, friends. I think that Jesus is actually bringing that good news to the poor. And so we have to ask as a church, as a big C church and as restoration, how is our good news, good news to the poor? How is our good news, good news to the poor? Because this is the good news that Jesus is bringing. So is our gospel, is it speaking good news into the lives of people who are living in poverty? And in his book, Beyond Charity, uh, John Perkins, who, if you've ever heard of John Perkins, read everything he ever wrote. That's my recommendation. He describes there's three basic human needs that every single human being has, no matter if they're rich, poor, black, white, Republican, Democrat, and there are these three needs. Listen to me. The first one is this. It's the need to belong. All of us have to, uh, have to have a place where, where we feel like we are loved and accepted and known. Isn't that right? You're like, you want that, don't you? Every human being wants a place to belong. The second thing is the need to be significant and important, that you have value, that you have purpose, that you, have, uh, that you matter in the grand scheme of, of this crazy thing called life on earth, that I have some sense of significance, and then the third thing is this, the need for a reasonable amount of security so that you feel stable, that you have, have safety, that you have, have basic needs met. All of us, no matter who we are today, all three of us, we have those needs. We want to belong. We want to feel like we have some sort of significance in our lives, and we, we want to feel stable. We want to feel like we have some sense of security. And here's the thing about poverty is that it actually affects all all three of those things. We typically focus on the financial security and the basic physical needs, but it's far bigger. It's all of our life. It affects my need to belong. It affects my significance and need to feel important, and it affects my security as a person. So as we know, global poverty, I mean, there's, just, there's poverty here, there's poverty all over the world. Uh, I was talking to a friend who uh, was actually a, a veteran who was in Afghanistan and was talking about just the horrors of poverty that he saw overseas and then coming back here and, and seeing the same thing. So we know there's poverty uh, no matter what the context is. But, but the World Bank, they went and they decided to, to interview people who were actually poor and ask them what they thought poverty was like all over the world. So they got answers from different places all throughout the world. And there was many, many things they had in common. And it may not be what you think. They, what they said was poverty for them uh, was talked about in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, social isolation, and voicelessness. In other words, it's much bigger than physical needs. It's much bigger than just a meal and some clothes. As Mother Teresa said, the most terrible poverty is loneliness and the feeling of being unloved. See, poverty is hitting more than just financial things. It's hitting at the core of dignity. It's am I an image bearer of God? Do I matter in this world? And poverty attacks that value. 
It makes you feel less than human. So as we talk about this, we got to understand that this is not simply just resources. It is that. It is a financial issue, but it's also a relational issue. It's a psychological issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's something that affects the whole person when we talk about this, meaning that we must be diligent, friends, to not just be satisfied with throwing out hot takes. You know what I'm saying? Not just throwing out simple answers and easy answers that that make it seem like that is right and I don't have to deal with it. Because we're not talking about an abstract issue. We're talking about image bearers. We're talking about people who are made in the image of God. And when we're talking about people who are made in the image of God, they are not a flippant political issue. They are people. And so we have to be very, very careful to not allow an abstract idea distract us from the idea that we are called to love actual image bearers where they are. Bryant Myers, who's a leading Christian development thinker, he puts it this way. He says, poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meetings. If you were here last week, we talked about what shalom is. Shalom is a big concept in the Bible that means wholeness and life. It's the fullness of life, not just peace is in the absence of conflict, but you are in every human way whole. And poverty is the absence of that shalom that God is bringing in the world. So what's this mean for us? Why are we taking a whole Sunday and talking about this? Well, the reality is, whether it be here in our church or wherever you're interacting with on a daily basis, whether that be at your job or at home, you have interactions with people who are poor and the poor are our neighbors. And therefore we are called to love them and we're called to love them as we love ourselves. And so we need a framework for what that actually looks like beyond good intentions, beyond just hot takes. So what's poverty look like here? What's it look like in Lexington? According to recent data, there is around 18.9% of Lexington that lives at or below the poverty line. That's about 59,000 people in our city living at or below the poverty line. That, to give you a visual representation, is like Commonwealth Stadium Fool. All of those folks living at or below the poverty line here in our picture. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a big kind of bird's eye view, but, but we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of get down to ground level. And that's why I want to invite a couple people here today that could give us that, that picture um, very, very clearly. And that's Melissa Tibbs and Lindsay Anderson. So can we welcome them? So I'll be the awkward guy in the middle, yeah. That's 5 o'clock on Friday, but friends, that's what 5 o'clock Friday looks like. Yeah. So, um, Melissa and, and Lindsay, they work for something called Community Action Council, and um, they, uh, woo yes. And uh, so they're going to be sharing, they, they work with, with poverty every day, and, and um, they're going to be giving some examples, and I hope that um, as they give these examples, you do not let these examples become stereotypes, because it's so easy to do that. So just listen with an open mind to hear, um, because they, they are in the trenches of this every day. So f- just first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what you do on a regular basis at Community Action Council, kind of what your all's roles is? And- I'll go first. Yeah, so I'm Melissa. 
Um, and my role at Community Action Council, which is an anti-poverty nonprofit organization, um, and I'll talk about kind of how it started in a few minutes, but um, I oversee kind of all the ways in which a nonprofit organization like mine obtains resources, primarily through grants, um, but certainly fundraising. And I'm also in charge with communicating the work of what we're doing, the impact of the people who we are serving to the community, to our legislators, and et cetera. And just a little bit about Community Action Council um, to give you a tiny bit of a history lesson. Um, in 1962, a book was published called The Other America, and it talked about poverty um, and specifically mentions it's relevant to Kentucky because it mentioned Martin County. And um, really kind of as Americans across the country in the early 60s were experiencing more affluence, they were buying homes, they were installing air conditioners, they were buying televisions, and all of these things to them represented you know, becoming wealthier, there was this book published that said that there's another America out there and they're called the invisible poor. And um, in particular, it talked about Appalachia um, in Kentucky. And uh, so President Johnson, um, about nine months after the President Kennedy was shot, came to visit it, uh, Martin County. And from that visit and all of the things that were going on kind of around the area of, or the, the understanding of poverty, launched the war on poverty. And so community action agencies across the country started sprouting up. And so for Kentucky, there are 23. And every county in Kentucky is covered by a community action agency. And our job as this, the community action agency is to do the anti-poverty work that the local municipality might might otherwise be doing. And so we partner with local governments in order to address the causes and conditions of poverty. That's really what we're charged with doing. And Lindsay does one of the facets of what we do as a CAA, and she's going to tell you about it. Hey, guys, I'm Lindsay. Um, so what I do at Community Action is I work in our supportive housing programs. Um, specifically, I'm the housing navigation coordinator, um, which I'll talk a little more about that. But um, so in... In Lexington, on any given night, there's somewhere between 600 and 700 people experiencing homelessness, um, it, and it depends on the time of year, um, whenever you capture that information. Um, and the people experiencing homelessness that we really try to focus most of our resources towards are those that are experiencing chronic homelessness, um, which is... Um, that you've experienced homelessness a year or longer or multiple years in a row, um, or those that experience episodic homelessness, which is repeated homelessness over and over and over again. Um, so, of course, everybody experiencing homelessness obviously deserves help and assistance to get back on their feet, um, but we try to um, really target those that don't have other resources like family or friends or community that's able to lift them up. Yeah. yeah. And one thing I, I failed to mention, too, is that, you know, a lot of the issues where we, we serve here at our church and are passionate about issues of, of addiction, um, racial reconciliation, um, and, and, and stuff like that, like, poverty touches all of this. Like, poverty is homelessness. We work with homelessness. Poverty has its hands in each one of these things. And, and you see it up close and personal. You guys do every day. And, and so you know that the causes of poverty are more complex. You've talked about generational versus um, situational poverty. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Olivia? We'll both do it. So there, there's two different, there's lots of different ways to think about poverty, but two of the most common, I think, are what's called generational. And the actual definition is that when two generations of a family or more 
um, have experienced poverty, and that's, um, you know, uh, Justin talked about, Pastor Justin, excuse me, talked about... Um, <laughs> that feels weird. Okay. This guy talked about um, the 18.9% and um, of, of people living in poverty. And what that measures is people whose income is, or households whose income are $25,100 or less. Um, that's 100% of poverty. And so um, what a lot of nonprofit agencies do in this area serve, um, work alongside people up to 200% of poverty. Um, so it's important to know that the 25,100 is really just kind of a benchmark, but we know that people cannot be self-sufficient um, if they're at 101% of poverty, that it is, um, it is, it takes, you know, up to more than twice what the federal guidelines say is poverty in order to really be able to kind of stand on your own and be self-sufficient. Um, and so that's generational poverty as families experiencing two or more um, family members in a row uh, of that. And situational poverty is something that might be more familiar to some of us, which which means literally that a circumstance or setback um, is what has now led you to be experiencing um, less economic conditions, right? So like a loss of a job, a, a chronic health um, incident, um, both of those factors, you know, and the idea that you could be in something temporarily um, and that hopefully with the resources and protective factors that we all want to have in our lives, we might be able to come out of poverty. Do you want to, any of the families that you're working with? Um, so at the housing programs, we have at Community Action, um, of course, there's several across Lexington, um, but we have um, a program that specifically works with families, and um, the majority of those families, if uh, I'd venture to say probably all of them, um, experience generational poverty. Um, a lot of them were homeless. The adults um, experienced homelessness when they were children with their families. Um, and so that now, being adults and having their own children, they've experienced homelessness again. Um, yeah. Wow. And one of the things that you, uh, you guys have put on in the past year is something called a poverty uh, simulation. And there's another one, October 6th, by the way, which we will announce when it comes up, but highly, highly recommend. I did it this past time. Um, and basically, you get in a room and you play a role for an hour and one uh, 15 minutes equals a week and you get, you know, kind of fake money and you figured stuff out. I was uh, a 21-year-old Latino man, which was not hard to, to pull off because, I mean, I look, you know, I'm, so, I'm just kidding. Um, but I had two little sisters uh, in, in high school and a, and a baby and uh, that was, uh, and my dad was in prison and my mom was out of the picture. And so I had the responsibility in this poverty simulator to make it through a month while also being in college, getting my, my, my kid, my baby sisters to school, making sure the baby was taken to daycare, having to figure out bus fares and cashing um, checks at Walmart. And by the end of the month, I was evicted. Um, and my, my sisters and the baby were on the street because there were so many factors of, of life that I don't have to deal with, that many of us don't have to deal with, that came about. I was so humbled at the end of, of this thing, walking out of there thinking, one of the biggest issues here really wasn't the, the money or the, the thing. It was, I don't have a relational, I have a relational network that many of these people don't have. And you've alluded to that. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? I mean, that's, that's what was really eye-opening for me. Okay. 
Um, yes. So you've mentioned it already, and there's there's a a great deal of thought that that poverty is actually the the least um, required element of poverty is finances. That it really is um, when you live in poverty. Oftentimes, you you have a limited or no network of people around you. Your neighbors um, are often people who are also living in poverty, and so they can't be the type of resource to you um, that maybe we would otherwise want. Families um, get very stretched, very thin. You know, I, I have been in circumstances where I've talked with families, and when they have one or more family members who have a, a doctor's appointment, whether it's related to a chronic health need or not, if it's just a tr traditional... Um, doctor's appointment, but they don't have a car, they are utilizing resources, most often parents for their children, right? So they have a neighbor or an aunt or someone who can provide a ride, but maybe only one. So that ride goes to the child. And then the parent is maybe not seen. Um, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about when we're speaking about poverty. It is about, um, do we have what it takes to live the life that we all want to live? Um, and, the, and the poverty simulation is just a really good way of, deter, of, of showing that, you know, we often, the poverty simulation is not for people who have never experienced poverty to come try to find out what it's like. A poverty simulation is really about, um, sorry, no. I don't often get to do this in church. It feels a little bit different. <laughs> um, People in poverty are always ourselves, right? There's never a person who comes to our poverty simulation who doesn't think back on a time where they didn't have as much as maybe they have now. And maybe you don't always characterize it as poverty. Maybe it's not your parents telling you or your neighborhood telling you that you live in poverty. But when you go through the simulation, you have an opportunity to really experience maybe as if you were a child, what your parents experience and seeing the stress and seeing the the burden of trying to make it through a month, a simulated month, with very little resources. And then all of a sudden you're given, you know, a, what we call a, you know, a, a bad card or something like that. Like we really try to simulate when people get setbacks, what that does to them. And very few things that come through a poverty simulation are opportunities for advancement, right? They're usually, oh, your car broke down or the microwave stopped working or something like that, where all of a sudden people who don't live in poverty have to really think about, is that a big deal? How does that, what does that mean to me? And you find out quickly, it's a big deal. You don't have extra resources to throw at something that's unexpected. And right away, you're in a situation where it's like, what am I gonna do next, you know? And so that's really the goal of the poverty simulation. But it's also what we experience every day that we, we have people who are making hard, tough choices about what they're, gonna do, what they're gonna do with the resources that they have and where they can allocate them. And I'm telling you, most of them go to the children. And so you understand quickly why generational poverty happens because adults are not in a position where they can take care of themselves the way that they other might, otherwise might want to. So, and then putting that aside, let's talk about education and employment for just a second. Um, you know, it's very, very difficult and expensive to live in poverty. Um, and then try to think about what it would be like to advance your employment, right? To try to get a better job with higher wages. It's so much energy and resources just to keep what you have. And then thinking about how do you go about preparing yourself for the next. It's so laborious and intensive and it's very, very difficult um, to, to do that. And so that's another reason why at the end of the day, you just want to not think about what's necessary or preparing for your interview or, 
or figuring out you know, how you can go take an, an extra class when your resources are stretched. And a lot of times, um, you know, work for people, you know, we can talk about wages and there's some structural elements here. So Lindsay and I are both really passionate about not wanting to give you an unfair look at it. Um, but there's some structural elements that, you know, low wage, low wage income is real here in Kentucky. Um, living wage is about $15 and not very many positions start off at that. Um, and if you are somebody who hasn't obtained, you know, a high school diploma or a GED for whatever circumstances, we're going into those kinds of, um, you know, positions of employment is going to be very, very difficult and probably take you twice as long as someone else. Um, and so we think about what it takes to improve yourself. And that's where the church really comes into hand because we, it really takes all of us to be able to provide an asset or a skill. And I think we're going to talk about that in a minute, but um, that this is a long-term problem, but it isn't something that somebody can do by themselves. And that's the other thing that the poverty simulation shows you. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. <laughs> one, one thing I wanted to yeah. mention about the poverty simulation, um, just as it relates to homelessness, um, I've gone through a couple of different poverty simulations. I mean, it's the same simulation, but I've done it a few different times with, with different agencies. And one thing that happened in the one that we did um, a few months ago was, I don't know if it was your family or another one, but um, a family that was evicted, the family that was like sitting right next to them said, hey, you can come live with us. We can share our resources. Um, and that's a real thing that happens a lot. Um, there's a lot of, of families and individuals that, don't have a place to call their own, but they're not necessarily out on the streets or in a shelter, and so you don't see them. Um, they're kind of like the invisible homeless population. Can I? Yeah. <laughs> about education for just a minute, too. Um, you know, we talk about, and I hate the fact that I can't cite my sources to you, because it's things I've read over time, but, um, so just trust me, but also, if you want it, I'll give it to you. Um, you know, uh, children from, from families with low income often say at some point in their educational career that their parents or the people in their lives as adult figures don't care as much about their activities in school as a child from maybe an, a more affluent um, area. And um, I'm guessing here um, from memory also from reading it that it's the idea that parents can't show up to things at school, right? They don't have as much flexibility um, when you're working in low-wage jobs or if you're working part-time jobs to try to, to make the living wage that it would, requires here in Lexington, you don't have as much time and availability. But that's being translated to children as something different. So maybe that hopelessness that you referred to earlier or just the idea that um, it's not as important. And on, and on some real practical levels, when we've all been in situations, financial or not, where we've been very stressed, and I'll give you an example of how this is translating to young children. Um, a couple days, and I can cite my source on this one. There was a study called Hart and Risley. It was in 1995, and they looked at the language that children from various socioeconomic um, status families were hearing. And essentially what it boils down to, and I'm not a scientist, so forgive me, but children from families with low income were hearing far fewer words in their lifetime, but in the first five years of school, so when, or before school, so when they went to school, their language and their, their literacy and their vocabulary was not as developed as um, their, their peers from higher income families. And so you think about it, like when we're stressed, you know, you, you shut down, or maybe you don't have enough time, or maybe you're too tired because you've worked multiple jobs when other families get the opportunity to just work one job and make enough to 
to provide for their families. So those are some real, like some tangible ways in which the stress of what is, what it, what it takes to live in poverty and how expensive it is to live in poverty um, can be translated onto children. And so, and then that continues to replicate and it's not easily made up. You can't make up for that difference, right? Um, and so there are social service programs that are trying and trying really hard, but yeah. not easily done. Yeah. One thing to, to bring up, too, is something I love that you say is um, it's cause we, we've, we've used the word around here of, of empowerment, empower people to do that. And, and you've lovingly corrected and said that, um, you know, it's better to say opportunity, that, that we want to give people an opportunity. Because even the idea of empowering um, gives the, the, the connotation that we're the one doing the work for them when we want to open up the door for them to have the opportunity, the same, same opportunity we do, to have that equity of opportunity. So you guys talk about that a little bit real quick. Sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, just with the populations I work with um, that experience homelessness, um, you know, 99% of the time, nobody wants to be homeless. Um, they would choose otherwise if they had the opportunity to do so, whether that be um, income or if for a lot of the families that we work with, they actually have some sort of income, um, but something in their history is preventing them from finding another place, whether that be an eviction or some sort of criminal history, or if they just don't understand how the process works, like they don't know how to go and talk to a landlord, they don't know how to go and apply for an apartment, or they don't have $50 per adult in the household to pay for the application fee. Um, so it's a lot of little barriers like that that we're able to um, assist people with to just give them the same opportunity that that our brothers and sisters have. Yeah, that's great. There's a, a statement that I like to think about sometimes that the, op the opposite of poverty is not wealth, it's justice. And so that very much falls in line with what you're saying that it really, for some people, the opportunities are not as accessible for, as for others. And that's where we try to intervene and make sure that we can do with dignity what it, what it is and what it takes to make sure that opportunities are available for everyone who wants them. Yeah. So tell me, like, just give us an idea then with this kind of bigger picture. Like, what would it look like for the church, for restoration to... Um, this is a big question, I know. <laughs> what would it look like to, to really speak into this, like to, to, to serve? I mean, as a, as a church, how do we love our, our poor neighbors, people living in poverty? Yeah. Well, so the first, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, I, I mentioned that the beginning of our work was in 1962 and 64, but really the work of community action agencies began in the church. Um, in settlement houses in the 1800s and well before that, as Justin talked about in the Bible, that the, that the helping those in need really started with the church. And so we, I, I think we are the best um, avenue for making real sustainable change for people. Um, one thing that occurs to me is that community action agencies, or when I'm, when I'm faced with trying to meet a need, that's really all I know are the needs. I don't really know the assets of certain communities or areas. Like, you know, I can do a, a census data survey and all of that kind of thing to determine, well, what is, how many people in this area have a GED or a high school diploma or et cetera. But I don't know how many people in that same area are skilled carpenters or are artists or um, can provide, you know, some sort of tangible thing that we all need to survive. And so it would be really cool 
just as a way for restoration to sort of have an understanding of like who its people are and what the what the composition of the families are is to understand what are the assets that reside so that we can have start something to, to give. Yeah, yeah, so that we can start to match. And not in a long term every day I'm going to call you, you know, four times a week for that asset, but <laughs> I promise I won't. Um, but really kind of an understanding of like, you know, what it is that we could do in ways that won't be too overreaching for you who also have lives and people to care for and things to provide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have anything to that? Or? Um, just to kind of mirror what Melissa said, um, a lot of the times the, the best way that, that I think we can help has nothing to do with like money or finances. Um, it's building those relationships, knowing who's around you. Mm -hmm. um, having the ability to call somebody and say, hey, I need your help with this thing. Um, because there's a lot of agencies that are already doing things financially um, that are really helpful. So there's no need, no need to duplicate that. You can support the agencies that are already doing that work, um, but then, like Melissa said, you and what you can bring to the table. Um, just make that make yeah. that known. And So we don't need yeah. to start this, okay, guys, today we're starting a new homeless ministry <laughs> because there's already so many organizations. It's finding ways to plug into those organizations and, and doing that. Don't reinvent the wheel. I mean, Marcus Patrick was here a few... <laughs> Would you say mentoring? Yeah. That's Vanessa, you guys. She also worked for a community action agency, and she's a friend of mine, so she's here to support us. But um, mentoring, you know, that's for real. We, you know, I don't want to, we didn't want to give stereotypes, but the largest percentage of people that we're serving are single-headed households and usually female. Um, and so there are just children living in families that don't have people because of whatever circumstances that can kind of really come alongside them for the long term. And that's, if there's anything that you wanted to do, that's the most needed thing. Wow. That's powerful. I want to, can I pray for you all sure. before we move on? Now, th people like Melissa and Lindsay, and I know many of others in our church that work in these areas of dealing with issues of homelessness and poverty and addiction, like uh, there's a it's, a, it's a heavy world. It's a really heavy world. And, and um, I hope you all pray for them and and encourage them, give them hugs, and thank them on a regular basis because you deal with heavy stuff all the time. And um, so, so really, we're grateful for you guys, your example, and what you're doing on a daily basis. And just want to pray for you real quick. Cool. Yeah. Father, in the grand scheme of things, um, the little things of, of taking care of um, the food and the, the, the water and the roof over our head, we don't think about that most of us we take that for granted and realize not realize that people every day in our city um, that's a question mark and not a period and so um, as we step into these these situations and dealing with this I, I pray for our sisters here that on a daily basis deal with the um, the heaviness of need around them and Lord I know that that can can be um, something that um, pierces souls and there's an ache that they have within them and I know that ache is not bad because that ache drives them it drives them to make a difference um, but I just pray that you would love them and 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 care for them and surround them with love pray for their families too Lord that you protect them and give them health and life as they can continue to work within this um, but Lord we're so grateful for them help us as a church to come around them and support them as they support so many here in our city we love you and thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Can we thank them? Thank you, God. Well, as we close today, I, I just I hope we know a couple things. Number one, the, the, the number one goal today was just simply empathy. Just empathy. It's just understanding from where people are come from. If we walk away with anything else, I just pray, hopefully, we have empathy for those who are sitting in these situations on a daily basis. It's not a guilt trip or a shame situation. We're not saying, man, look what we're not doing or look how we, you should do this and you should go out and care for the poor. It has nothing to do with the shoulds and the ought tos. It has everything to do just simply with our hearts. Because as I hear this, I think, God, I just, I need a new heart. I just need a new heart. I don't need a, a, a big strategy session. I just need love to, to change my heart. And I know as my heart has changed, my actions will change. And the way I see people will change. And the way I treat people will change as you begin to change my heart. So that's my prayer for us today. As we continue to walk in these, these situations of working with homelessness and poverty and, and addiction and all the other ways that we're serving in our community, I just want God to transform our hearts to be like His to break our hearts where we need them broken and to just love the way that we have been loved in Jesus Christ. Dorothy Day, who who was a Catholic activist, she spent her whole life working with the poor. She said this way, she said, the greatest challenge of the day is this, how to bring about a revolution of the heart, a revolution that has to start with each one of us. When we begin to take the lowest place to wash the feet of others, to love our brothers with the burn, that burning love, that passion which led to the cross, then we could truly say, now I have begun. Ultimately, it comes back to the love that we have received on the cross, and that's what we celebrate today in communion. So as we move into this time of response, let me pray for us. Jesus, we need new hearts. All of us here today, whether we are rich, whether we are poor, we have a way of seeing the world that sometimes projects onto it our own hatred and preferences and prejudices that allow us not to step across the line and love our neighbor as ourselves. So Jesus, I pray today you would break down those walls. In Isaiah 53, it describes you, Jesus. It says, you had no beauty or majesty to attract anyone to you. There was nothing about you that made people hold you in esteem, but you were pierced for our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon you, and by your wounds we are healed. And so, Jesus, in our poverty we all share the poverty of our need for a savior we come to you today we meet at the level ground at the foot of the cross no matter what our background or experience is no matter what our socioeconomic situation would you make us one family rich and poor black and white and everything in between unite us Jesus in the great love that you give us on your cross it's in your name we pray. Amen. We are going to have a time of response.